Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast, a part of Cowan's fifth annual Future Health Conference held virtually this year on June 24th and 25th, 2020. Over the past five years, the Cowan Future Health Conference has brought together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare, technology, and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. My name is Charles Free, and I'm Cowan's healthcare services analyst, and one of my areas of focus over the past several years has been in digital therapeutics, which hold the potential of a new class of drugs with software as the therapeutic agent. And in this episode of the podcast, here to discuss the topic, I'm pleased to have joined me, Anand Iyer, Chief Strategy Officer of WellDoc, and someone who played a key role in the development of Blue Star, the first FDA-cleared mobile prescription therapy for adults with type 2 diabetes. Uh, welcome, Anand. Good morning, Charles. So, Anand, uh, why don't we start with what is WellDoc and uh, what, what does the company do? So, WellDoc, we're a digital health and digital therapeutics company that uses automated AI-driven digital software to help support both the patient and the provider in the management of their chronic condition. Whilst we started our journey in type 2 diabetes, we've expanded to include other forms of diabetes, type 1 and soon-to-be gestational, along with the comorbid conditions of diabetes, namely hypertension, weight management, and, and heart failure. And the reason for being for our product is to A, provide real-time coaching for a patient at the point of care so that when they enter any parameter, could be a glucose parameter, could be a medication parameter, could be a social determinant of health parameter, what they ate, how they exercised, to provide them real-time coaching and feedback at that point of their care but to secondly provide them with the longitudinal insights to not just tell them how they did say at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month, but rather to tell them the correlative insights on how they did. Hey, your glucose was high here and here because of this uh, violating meal or because of the skip medication. So you have the ability to teach them over time. We also support what we call clinical decision support for the healthcare provider, and that is how do you take all the data for a patient, run it through evidence-based algorithms and software, and provide to their doctor, their nurse, their certified diabetes educator, a view of A, where they were, say three months ago, where they are today, what's changed, and what evidence suggests they should do? And when you provide those two pieces to support the patient and to support the provider, we've seen a tremendous shift in hemoglobin A1Cs. We've seen a tremendous shift in costs that the patient incurs to the healthcare system. And we've seen a tremendous engagement on the part of both the provider and the patient. So you're kind of knocking off that quadruple aim set of objectives. That's kind of what we do at WellDoc. That's great. And, and maybe talk a little bit more about Blue Star in particular. Uh, can, you, can you talk about sort of the results and outcomes that you're actually seeing in, in your patients? Yeah, one of the things we decided earlier on was that, you know, did we want to be an app for an app? sake, or did we actually want to be a, a something of more clinical value? And in the early days, we worked with University of Maryland uh, and the Department of Epidemiology, Dr. Charlene Quinn, uh, who helped run randomized control studies. These were first in the industry. Nobody had ever done a randomized control study on an app. They typically do RCTs on medical devices and drugs. 
And we had shown in this uh, randomized control study an average 2.A1C reduction for patients who used our, our product. We've replicated that in a third randomized control study that we did in the province of Ontario. And with over 45 peer-reviewed journals and posters uh, and real-world studies, so on average, we see that hemoglobin A1C shift by, by two points. What we have also noted, Charles, is that the shift is also pronounced in uh, slightly higher when they start with a higher A1C. So there's a disproportional effect of Blue Star for patients who start with higher A1Cs. We've seen, for example, on average, 60% of our patients who start with an A1C above nine have drops that are in excess of three points, just, which is very significant. And just compare that to what the FDA requires for a new drug. A new drug to be cleared by the FDA requires A1C to be dropped in a clinical trial by 0.5. So you're talking about four to six to seven X what the FDA requires uh, to clear a new drug. And so that's very important. And lastly, I'll say that we were very fortunate to work with IBM Watson Health on uh, Truven Analytics, formerly Truven Analytics, on understanding the economic impacts associated with those types of A1C shifts. And on average, on average, when a patient shifts their A1C by that two points, it's about a $3,100 per patient per year total cost savings for the, for the employer or for the uh, uh, health insurer to support that patient. And so we're seeing a large part of those through reductions in acute utilization, emergency room, uh, uh, hospital admits and doctor's office visits, but also in the supplies and meds that they consume and of course the comorbid complications that they have. So you actually see tremendous health outcomes in the numerator and cost outcomes in the denominator. And by that you mean uh, less uh, medication utilization? For many patients, yes. And for many patients, you may actually get them to a higher correct dose of their meds. But in doing so, you may have knocked out one or two unnecessary hospitalizations, um, which is clearly a larger cost than, than the addition of, of say, an, an additional dose of a medication. And it seems, though, I mean, uh, a three, three, point, three and a half point decrease, right, coming down from nine, I mean, isn't it right to uh, see that if you drop below, was it five and a half or so, you're, you're not really considered diabetic? I mean, it, is it possible to push somebody through into almost revision or reversal? So it's a great question. It's a great question. No, just the genetics of diabetes, nobody's figured out that cure just yet. And so the key word here is average. So if a patient who starts on average uh, with an A1C above nine, which can be nine, 10, 11, 12, as high as 18 or 20, has drops in excess of three points, we typically see in the bell curve, uh, there's a huge uh, in, uh, a band of, of patients whose A1Cs are between nine and 10 and a half and 11, if you would. And that's really the band you want to go after, where you're bringing those people down to goal. And of course, we've seen very significant drops for people whose A1Cs are 14, 15. We've seen six, seven point drops. And the idea here is that seven is the goal, um, as established by the American Diabetes Association. If you have an A1C between six and seven, you're extremely well controlled and uh, considered diabetic, but extremely well controlled. Of course, if you have an A1C less than six, typically five and a half to six is that pre-diabetic range. And typically less than five and a half means you don't have diabetes. So I think the net effect is to try to bring these people down to that goal of seven or less than seven and keep them there uh, over time. Touching on that, then, you know, how, how, you know, how do you guys see this working better than the status quo? So, so, so maybe it would be helpful to compare uh, 
what Blue Star does and what WellDoc is doing to uh, what is the current standard of care then? So if I, I'll personalize it, Charles, uh, as many uh, of the folks in the industry know, I'm a type two diabetes patient myself. So let's just use me as the example. Um, I have to manage my glucose. I have a blood glucose meter. I have several of them, one in my car, one at home, one in my bag, et cetera. And I have to monitor my glucose levels at various times throughout the day because there's a different uh, meaning of what it means to wake up, say, with a low blood glucose value versus have a high blood glucose value after a meal. It tells you something about the number of carbohydrates, perhaps, that you ate at that meal. So I have to manage my blood glucose, but at the same time, I have to manage my uh, food intake, I have to manage my uh, exercise, I have to manage my sleep, all of the vectors, if you would, that support uh, uh, a diabetes patient's overall wellness. Right? And you know, there's this little thing called life that tends to get in the way every now and then, right? And there's no blame. People try to do what they do, but they have the reality of the things that they need to do, and they can't just live their life around their disease. It's, it's quite the opposite. They almost want to put the disease in the background. Okay? At the same time, I am encouraged uh, uh, to see my doctor four times a year, uh, predominantly to measure my A1C, my hemoglobin A1C. And it's measured, the standard of care says, you know, measured every three months. And so I diligently try to write down everything in the current standard of care model and take it into my doctor. But what's the doctor going to do in a five minute office visit? And, you know, it's actually funny, Charles, when you go to a, when I go to my doctor's office uh, uh, here in Maryland, uh, I, I see other diabetes patients furiously writing down on a, on a napkin you know, their glucose results from the last three weeks uh, or what they ate. And I don't remember what happened yesterday, let alone three weeks ago. And so it's a little bit of garbage in and garbage out. And so the standard of care today, whilst the rules, I mean, think about it, Charles, diabetes is probably one of the best codified diseases, right? There's a rule and a guideline for almost everything. A American Diabetes Association the American Association of Diabetes Educators. I mean, it is a, it is a well-understood, well-quantified, and well-documented uh, disease. And yet, we're stuck in this current paradigm where people aren't doing the things that they should, and, and there's no way to translate, if you would, the data, should they gather it, to information, knowledge, action, and, their, and therefore outcomes. So that's the snapshot of how it's working today. It's a little bit of haphazard. And you almost want to turn that equation upside down and say, is there a way technology can actually support both the patient and the provider? So can they stand on technology's shoulders uh, uh, and reach higher? And can technology help first auto-sense and grab this data? So you start to think about connected devices, connected blood glucose meters, connected blood pressure cups, weight scales, things like that. Can we take information from the patient's existing treatment pathway? like their medication regimen from their pharmacy or their labs from the, uh, uh, their lab values from, from, their, from their EHR. Can we bring these in and can we use these values along with their daily uh, inputs to judiciously provide them coaching that's scientifically driven, cleared by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. So these are clinically validated feedback that are coming to these patients, telling them what to do at that point in time. And then can we provide and use AI-driven software to just isolate the things that the provider needs to talk to the patient about. So rather than me going to my doctor and, and you know, you know, he looks at me and says, okay, tell me how the last three months has gone. Um, I don't know. Um, it, it, you know, uh, if he sees a high glucose value, he says, did you eat too much? I don't remember. Did you skip your med? Could have been. 
Um, instead of that kind of wasted time in that scarce five-minute visit that I have with my doctor, can he actually look at this report and say, hmm, looks like there's three things we need to focus on. So by the way, great job here, here, and here, but let's focus on these items. And so you're actually using data to illuminate the pathway forward to optimize the treatment pathways. And so it's a stark difference, uh, Charles, between kind of the desired vision and certainly what we're doing at WellDoc and what status quo is today, if that makes sense. As we think more broadly about digital therapeutics themselves, uh, you, you were one of the first or, uh, to really hit, uh, to get approval. You know, maybe help uh, our listeners here understand a bit more than you know how we def- how you're defining digital therapeutics, uh, and let's compare that because uh, you just made the comparison to to digital health or to just a health app that I might have on my iPhone or or, or Galaxy phone. So if you were to think of the universe of apps, and if you were to think of, of a Venn diagram is probably the best way to describe this, you have apps, the largest circle. Within apps, you have a subset of those apps called digital health apps. So those that focus on, on health, they could be tracking your weight, it could be tracking the number of steps that you take, it could be recording uh, symptoms, things like that. And then you have a subset of the digital health circle, which is digital therapeutics. So what, what defines that innermost circle? A couple of things. And these things, for the, for the interested folks who want to, to go and, and check up on it, uh, WellDoc, along with four other digital therapeutics companies, uh, co-founded what's known as the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, dtxalliance.org is, is the website. And we did that because we wanted to help the industry understand what rigor is required uh, around the development and delivery and support and maintenance of this class of, of, of product, these digital therapeutics products that, that, that's, that are required. And so one requirement we've discussed, multiple randomized control studies that actually demonstrate in peer-reviewed public, you know, published journals that you have an outcome. Second is you know, clearance by the regulatory authorities uh, uh, as a suitable uh, class of medical device. And again, it's the, it's the judgment of a third party, a non-biased party that says, yes, your product is safe to use. It doesn't induce any risk or you've, or you've sufficiently managed uh, risk uh, in your in your product, and 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 we have audited your your process to build the product, and 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 we've established that there's you know GMP or good manufacturing process associated with that. Third, it does meet all the cybersecurity requirements, uh, and you think about cyber here, things like SOC two and high trust certification and privacy HIPAA. You think about privacy in a stronger sense in the EU, for example, with GDPR. Um, It has to meet these requirements. Um, Fourth, it actually has to connect back into the clinical workflow and care team. And what's really distinguishing a digital therapeutic from any digital health or even telehealth, Charles? A digital therapeutic solution will connect the patient back to their own healthcare provider. And that's important because there's a trust factor associated with the patient and the provider. When you contrast that with telehealth, I could be connected to a telehealth doctor, and, and when you look at what's happening with COVID-19 and the fact that you know, state laws have been relaxed where doctors in, in Oregon can see a, you know, a, a patient in, in Maryland, um, I don't know who this doctor is. They don't know what my fears, beliefs, you know, struggles are, and yet they're the ones who, are, you know, who I've been connected to. So it has to connect with the patient's own, uh, if you would. And like that, there's several criteria that have actually been listed out by the DTX Alliance. Uh, Again, the website is uh, dtxalliance.org, but 
really to summarize these is there's a higher level of rigor associated with the development, with the testing, with the uh, 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 putting it through randomized control studies to show that it actually works, to getting it cleared, and then to supporting it and maintaining it with the proper SLAs and things like that in place, really that differentiate a digital therapeutic from a digital health or another uh, health app uh, solution. So, so, so none, you know, obviously all that makes sense. And, and if we think about the adoption of digital therapeutics, then with your product on the market, uh, you have paratherapeutics with their uh, FDA approved uh, uh, solution for substance abuse treatment. Um, the uptake has probably not been as, as large as I think some people had uh, initially expected and which kind of suggests that there's a, a bit of a learning curve here. Can you speak to sort of the, the challenges and hurdles uh, in commercializing a digital therapeutic? You know, wh- where, where are some of the big roadblocks in getting people to understand sort of what, what digital therapeutics can really offer? So you, you, you brought up a couple of great examples, uh, Charles, uh, paratherapeutics. In fact, just yesterday, uh, or day before yesterday, uh, we got the announcement uh, from the FDA that Achille, uh, one of the co-founding members of the, um, of the uh, Digital Therapeutics Alliance, uh, received their first FDA clearance. And congratu- congratulations to the entire Achille team for that uh, accomplishment. Um, what we're learning and what we've learned is that there is an adoption curve. And... What we've learned is that the analogy, perhaps, Charles, is how do you open a door that has, say, three keys that have to be uh, simultaneously turned? And, there's, and, and so what are the keys to success here, literally? It, one is you have to have a mechanism for payment. And those mechanisms can be many. In, in one pathway, you can have a mechanism that's tied to a prescription, right? So you can think of the dispensation of a digital therapeutic along the lines of an RX. And that's, for example, the pathway that, that Pair Therapeutics has, has chosen. It's one of the early pathways that we had as well. Uh, and since then, we've, we've broadened uh, to include others, which I'll talk about in a second. And in that pathway, you have to then ensure that you're listed uh, on, on, say, a, a, a database uh, that you're on someone's formulary and that somebody is covering you as a benefit. And just think about the complexity of what's involved. That means you have to more than likely have a agreement with the PBM. You more than likely have to have the PBM market this to their payers uh, in a favorable position uh, on their formulary. And you then have to have a pull through uh, to ensure that not only is it on the shelf, but people are actually buying it off the shelf, so to speak. So it's, it's a fairly complex model that is going to take time because at its core, it requires a doctor today to actually know about the fact that, hey, I can actually prescribe something that's uh, not a, a pill or, or an injectable um, or, or, or a, you know, a topical ointment uh, that, that the patient can use to help manage their condition. So there's a great deal of awareness and uh, industry adoption at the grassroots level. That'll, just, that'll take time to, to, to manifest if you would. At the same time, there are other payment mechanisms where you can go directly to an enterprise if you have the regulatory clearance, as we do, as we both have the RX and OTC clearances for our Blue Star product, that says, can you go directly to an enterprise, which could be a payer, a self-insured employer, say a large clinic, IDN, thing like that, and have a software licensing model, uh, whether it's a per user, whether it's a per site, whether it's a PMPM, there's so many different models that exist. And so I think the first thing 
for commercial success is you have to have a business model, right? That has to be well understood. And once you have the business model, you then have to execute what is known or what we uh, call the digital therapeutics engagement chain, which is how do you actually target the right patients? And once you've targeted them, how do you outreach to them? Do you outreach in person? So is it, you know, in a clinic, for example, doctor says, hey, Charles, I think this can help you walk across the hall and my nurse is going to you know, get you started. Is it done through an email? Is it done through an SMS campaign, other social media campaign, a letter, posters, things like that? So how do you outreach? And then how do you activate? Is the activation assisted with the human? Is the activation self? You start to think about some of the things we're doing with deep link technology, where a single link that's sent to the patient's uh, text uh, message inbox, when they click on that single link, it actually performs multiple functions, not the least of which is downloading the app, but then pulling all the relevant information and their you know, current labs, first name, last name, et cetera, from the EMR and pre-populating their profile in the digital therapeutic such that you've taken friction out of, the, you know, out of that activity, right? So now it's, it's frictionless activation. And then once you've activated, how do you get them to engage? And that's the billion dollar question that everybody's asking, right? How do you actually get them to engage? And engagement in and of itself has to be taken into consideration with the outcomes that are achieved. I'll tell you why. The last thing a payer would want is to continue to pay you know, for years for a product that doesn't improve somebody's health. But that's the worst of both worlds. A, they're paying, and B, people aren't getting healthier. So what you actually want is you want engagement in the context of outcomes. And so I think the summary uh, response is, there has to be a business model in place, but then there has to be this kind of value chain, this what we call the engagement chain, that, that identifies the right target, that figures out the right mechanism or mechanisms for outreach, for activation, for engagement. And then of course, on the back end of that, you have the typical support and report functions. It's that collection of things that needs to happen in order to have a successful, successful commercial model. The, the, Lesson learned uh, for us and, and certainly for others in the industry is that you, you can't bet on just one. You have to have multiple uh, pathways uh, that'll, that'll create success. And I recall a recent uh, panel that I was on with, with Chris Hogue, um, who, was, who was with Propeller, uh, another one of the founding co-member, co-founding members of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. And it was a very interesting comment that Chris made, which is, we're on the fourth iteration of our first business model. And this was right around the time when they were, when they were acquired uh, by ResMed. And just think of what he just said, right? We're on the fourth iteration of our first business model, which means there's a learning and, and there's an adaptive nature uh, of this. It's almost like you're doing it in sprints, if I were to use the software development analogy. And so I think it's important for people to realize that there may not just be one pathway for success. There could be multiple pathways for success that may differ as you sell to different customer types, as you sell in different geographies, et cetera. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, and, and I think that uh, example, you, you talked about the, the fourth iteration of the first business model, you know, it, it, it kind of speaks to having to adapt to, um, all the other parties involved, right? You, you talked earlier in the RX model, right? Yeah, you have to engage with potentially payers, PBMs, uh, physicians. 
Um, how much how much of this do you think then is a education process? Uh, particularly, let's say providers, uh, and and I use that because you know when you think about a lot of the, uh, the digital therapeutic companies that are are coming, let's talk about Achilles for example as well and Pair. Right? A, a lot of you are walking down the path of you'd like it to in some ways mimic a traditional uh, drug that is prescribed by a, a provider. And in this case, though, right, uh, you have other traditional means. You know, pharma companies have obviously big market machines and uh, traditional means of marketing drugs to physicians. Uh, obviously, it used to be in person, maybe more e-detailing now. What is the challenge then for uh, a new class of therapeutics uh, that physicians just aren't familiar with? You know, what, what, is that, you know, what does that hurdle look like and uh, how do you overcome that? So if the provider is a part of your go-to-market model, which in digital therapeutics, the likelihood of that is, is fairly high, um, there's, there's many answers to that. So one is, do you directly reach out to the providers, i.e. you become, uh, uh, you know, to a certain effect, you become a pharma-like company where you have a direct sales force that's calling on, on and detailing, if that's the right word, uh, physicians, right? Uh, instead of putting samples of drugs on their shelf, you're putting sample codes uh, of, of digital therapeutic solutions, right? So the, the, the analogy is actually quite powerful, that it's, it's literally the same as you become a Merck or a Pfizer or a GSK. And, and that's a very, very resource uh, capital intensive uh, process, uh, as you can imagine, but one that actually goes straight to the grassroots. At the same time, can you partner with a pharmaceutical company that may actually then leverage a part of its sales distribution force to actually do that for you? So you start to look at the likes of some of the digital therapeutics uh, uh, partnerships in the industry along the lines of, of Click and Sanofi or what formerly was uh, Sandoz and, and Pear um, with the intent of, of, if you would, leveraging that uh, uh, field force to actually get. So you're, the, the digital therapeutics uh, companies has a multiplier effect because they're using somebody else's resources to get, if you would, to those individuals. Uh, and then you have, of course, professional organizations that you can work with, the American Medical Association, um, uh, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, in our case for diabetes, etc. So there are pathways where you can go through a, uh, a middleman, if you would. You could go through a third party that then brings, if you would, scale, which is really what we're after here is how do you actually drive scalability? And so you're leveraging a third party's presence to, to reach uh, in, a, in a cost-effective, scalable way uh, each of these providers. So you know, that's kind of one answer. There's, there's another answer that says, over time, we're just going to see an inevitability of a physician's ability to either know that a digital therapeutic uh, uh, solution exists in, in a certain disease domain, and that there's a certain familiarity and trust associated with the use of a digital therapeutic. So uh, I'll, be, I'll be a little uh, general here, Charles, but when you think about it, we're now in 2020. The iPhone was uh, first introduced in 2007, if memory serves me correct. And your first generation of iPhone kids are going to be going to college in the next five years. And arguably, within the next five to eight years, you're going to see the first generation of medical school entrants who are iPhone generation users. And do you think that they're not going to expect 
that there's a digital uh, solution component to the delivery of healthcare and the, and, the, and the science of medicine? Of course they will, because digital has pervaded every other aspect of their life. Why not medicine? And so when you step back at it and look at it that way, I use the word inevitability because I do believe we're not going to call it digital health or digital therapeutics five years from now. We're just going to call it health and therapeutics. And the digital will have to be an in implicit and inherent component of it. And if not, you won't be a player, which is why you see whether it's a payer, whether it's a pharmaceutical company, whether it's an IDN, whether it's a self-insured employer, everybody wants to pilot and try and learn how do we incorporate a digital aspect of our uh, care solutions? How do we incorporate digital into that fundamental fabric of delivering care? That's something that they're all interested in. And I think going forward, we won't use this the same way nobody calls it e-banking anymore, right? They just call it banking. They've dropped the prefix. I think we'll see the same effect. And so I think there's different ways to get to the provider direct. And then there's the second pathway that says it's going to be, it's just going to happen. And it'll happen uh, organically in the next five to eight years. That's great. I want to ask you, obviously, um, uh, COVID-19 obviously is, is impacting us all right now. And um, uh, the environment is very fluid in, in some ways. But one of the, the outcomes of all of this has been really uh, not only a quick reaction lesson from the regulators, but a really quick reaction for the market to sort of embrace virtual care, uh, particularly let's say telehealth is, is, the, is the big example. We've seen huge upsurge in the use of telehealth. You know, uh, two questions really. How, how do you interpret the surge in utilization? And, and in particular, what does that say about consumer and or provider readiness to embrace digital? And then the second question is, you know, what do you think that this means for the progress of digital therapeutics itself? So COVID-19 has, has actually um, uncovered so many uh, structural flaws in our healthcare system and in fact in our societal uh, uh, system as at large Charles you know I live here in Maryland and uh, I have a 10th grader uh, and when kids were sent home from school um, you know we we're thinking great you know open up a couple of zoom windows and you know get teachers to jump on and, and lecture uh, in real time and, and call it a day and very quickly, you learn uh, of the socioeconomic disparities within even well-to-do counties uh, where not every child has access to either high-speed internet access or, um, or uh, you know, an appropriate laptop that allows them to conduct a, a WebEx Zoom-like like, uh, uh, encounter. And you're like, huh, didn't expect that. Um, okay, well, we better get laptops to every child and we better get ensure that everybody has high-speed internet access because otherwise it's not going to work. So now, all of a sudden, doctors' offices are empty because those primary care doctors who may not have been deemed uh, essential uh, uh, emergency, if you would, think about a doctor's office in, in COVID-19 where they're not providing emergency services and they've told their patients not to come or they've been instructed to tell their patients not to come unless it's an emergency. So by and large, you have empty uh, doctor's offices. And overnight, they too, in a fee-for-service model, need to see patients. That's the only way they're going to make money. And so they embrace immediately the, the Zoom-like platforms and they pay specific attention to some of these emergent telemedicine codes. And overnight, 
what we've seen is that there's just a, a, a huge uh, influx of, of telemedicine calls. Uh, my wife's a dermatologist, and, and literally within a week, uh, she had shifted almost our entire practice over to telemedicine calls. And when you think about that effect, even post-COVID-19, after COVID-19 has, has, you know, kind of the, 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 the decay curve has, has gone away, and hopefully it'll go away soon, the convenience associated with a televisit, the, the inherent interruption factor, if you would, to a family uh, uh, to, who has to take their child uh, for a follow-up visit, that interruption factor is so much less. It's so much easier to just do it over a teleconsult. And I think there is going to be a large part of telemedicine that just persists beyond uh, this first tale of COVID-19. Now, enter stage left into this discussion, chronic diseases and digital therapeutics. So was it just day before yesterday, perhaps, that the CDC uh, issued a new report that said of the COVID-19 patients tested in the U.S., 30% of them had diabetes. 30%, Charles. That's three, that's two and a half times the incidence of diabetes in the United States. So this is a disproportional effect of COVID-19 on those with, with diabetes. And it's well known. It, it, the, the news covers this every day, right? That, you know, you're at more risk, you're more vulnerable if you have an underlying condition like congestive heart failure, diabetes, asthma, etc. And in the case of COVID-19, where you can't see your doctor, you can't interact with your doctor, the ability to have a digital therapeutic solution that actually allows you to have that continuity of care with your healthcare provider, not just any healthcare provider, is critical. And so I think the silver lining, if that's the right way to say it, of COVID-19 as it relates to digital therapeutics is not only did it create an uptick and, and, and surge in the number of you know, telehealth consults and televisits and, and telehealth in general, it'll also create an uptick in demand for digital therapeutic solutions because these solutions will be logical extensions of a healthcare provider's treatment pathway for a patient in a manner that's trusted, safe, secure, proven, all the things that we spoke of earlier on. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, um, you, you know, your thoughts here, are you, are you seeing that maybe then in demand uh, for the Blue Star platform? Has the discussions, you know, with potential uh, enterprise uh, clients, has, that, has this event kind of changed the way they, their conversations have, uh, have, have shifted with you? We are, Charles. We're, we're seeing an uptick in not just users, so enterprise customers and users, but we're also seeing an uptick in usage. So just as an interesting uh, tidbit, I asked our, uh, some of our data team, can you show me anything different in the months of March and April 2020, kind of at the peak COVID time when uh, the shutdown was occurring uh, and people were, were quarantining at home? Um, can you show me any difference in pattern of engagement? And what we saw was about a 22% uh, uptick in engagement uh, compared with engagement from, say, the same people during the course of the six months prior. So there was a, there was a marked, you know, 20, 22% increase in engagement. And we kind of dug underneath the covers to see what that uptick was and primarily a couple of functions. One was how they manage their activity and their glucose. One was certainly their food management, which is a huge one. 
Uh, and one was, you know, the measurement of glucose itself. And so what we saw that people were actually going to the app more uh, because it was a trusted source for them to actually help make smart food choices, ensure that they're exercising, you know, while they were uh, quarantining at home. And so I think we did see that effect. And I think we'll continue to see that effect even post COVID-19 uh, when, when the curve is, has decayed. That's interesting. Um, and, and when you look at that cohort of patients, even as let's say states have opened up, are, are you able to maybe track some of those members? Like if they're in a state that has opened up, let's say around Memorial Day, right? Uh, three weeks ago. Do you find that those members are still engaged or is that your expectation at least? It's our expectation, Charles. And I think that's going to be part of what our journey is in the coming weeks and months is how do we actually look on a week-by-week -week basis and try to affect and, and correlate, if you would, whether it's with zip codes and counties, whether it's correlating to people on different medication regimens, so more complex uh, uh, insulin regimens versus, say, more oral, simple metformin, Genuvia-like regimens, whether it's a correlation between age groups, uh, whether it's a correlation to, to uh, 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 whether they, these people are heavy engagers in food management or activity management or sleep management. I think the, the correlative insights we'll gain in the coming months will teach us a lot about going back to that digital therapeutics engagement chain, how to target the right person with the right messaging at the right instance. And we'll learn so much. It becomes, in a way, a data-driven strategy. You'll actually use the data that you have to actually articulate and sharpen pencils on where uh, to target patients, how to target and onboard patients, what features to promote to them, because you'll have data that actually suggests that in a statistically significant way. And so I think the next several months for all of the digital therapeutics companies are going to be critical to start to understand some of those data patterns. So Anand, then, you know, maybe one last big picture question for you here, then. Um, as you think about the opportunities that are before not only just WellDoc and digital therapeutics, but overall as, as we see increasingly a greater shift to use digital tools. Uh, and obviously COVID has you know, opened, I think, the eyes of many people on the, you know, the potential here. You know, what, what do you think the biggest opportunities to improve healthcare are? Um, you know, sort of big, big H. Um, and and, you know, and how, how important do you think the, the digital will be a, as a part of that? So I think digital will be a part of it, to the earlier comment. We won't call it digital therapeutics or digital health. We'll just call it health. And inherently, there'll be some component of it which is delivered over a digital medium. I think the future trend is going to be one that is going to be very data-driven. So we will use data, even from, this, even from, say, the first 30 or 60 days of patient engagement, to actually hone in on... Uh, an exact therapeutic pathway that makes sense at the N equals one level. So we'll use, say, data initially at a population level that we'll gather to then understand trends, patterns as it relates to the population, but we'll zero in on cohorts and individuals to understand the patterns that are right for patient A versus patient B. And so I think what we'll see is not only uh, uh, a further embracing of digital therapeutics and digital health going forward, but we'll see the role of data shine even more uh, in its ability to actually hone in and provide the best therapeutic pathway for a physician and patient pair 
to help optimize their condition, bend their outcomes curves, and bend their cost curves. So I think the role of data will, will improve, uh, and it'll improve almost quadratically. Why? We're collecting data at, a, at, a, at an amazing rate. Well, just think about how I'm collecting glucose data and activity data and medication data and sleep data, food data, et cetera. And to be able to harness the value, you know, we speak of those, um, you've heard it before, Charles, the five Vs of data. So just think about the variety of data we're capturing. Think about the velocity by which it's coming in, very high. Think about the variety of data that we're capturing. Thinking about the veracity these things are coming directly from sensors and whatnot. The trust is high. And then lastly, the value. So I think in many ways, these five Vs paint an amazing picture of potential of what digital therapeutics will do that are data-driven, illuminated by data insights, if you would. I think that's going to be a, a really important thing to watch out for going forward for all domains of disease, for all classes of digital therapeutics. The, the data will help illuminate some of the most interesting pathways forward for the adoption of these things in society. Well, that's, uh, I think, all the time we have for. And, uh, and you know, really, thank you, Anand, for joining us today. It was a really illuminating discussion, and it's really exciting to see uh, a lot of what's uh, coming down into the future. And we look forward to hopefully speaking with you again on the topic, uh, you know, as we see uh, WellDoc progresses, as well as we see how the industry progresses. Thanks, Charles, and thanks, Callum, for the participation, and look forward to doing this again in the future. Great, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.